found on the inside of your bulletin. We are reading from the ESV. I realize the Bibles out there are NIV Bibles, but this is from the ESV. So you can find it on the insert, Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. She was beautiful. She had blonde hair, blue eyes, a winning smile, and an infectious personality. Her name was Kelly Kinsella, and she was my first crush. It was sixth grade, and I had just moved from Dallas to uh, Northern Virginia, where I had been in a boys' school for the first five weeks of my life, uh, five uh, years of my life. And so it was a perfect storm, if you will, coming into adolescence and seeing girls. And let me tell you, it was fantastic. I loved the way they smelled. I loved the way they looked. And I loved my first crush, Kelly. She was fantastic. She was bigger than life. She was bigger than me, in fact. <laughs> she was a, uh, already a champion swimmer, and she would go on to the Naval Academy to swim. But it didn't matter that she was taller than me. It didn't matter that she could crush me with her biceps. What mattered is that I loved her, and I wanted her to love me back. Well, like all first crushes, or almost all anyways, they're inevitably doomed to disappointment. Uh, Kelly did not return my affections, and it became clear that she wanted nothing more than a friendship. And she moved on, and I moved on. Many of us can sympathize as we think of our first crush, and maybe the love that we had that wasn't returned to us. But I want to extend that concept of unreturned love, because all of us have experienced it at one time or another. Whether it was something as fun as puppy dog love with your first crush, or maybe it was love with a friend that was never returned. Maybe even the stakes were higher, a bad relationship with a parent where you always longed for that hope, that, that affection to come back to you, and it never did. And somehow you were left with a little bit of disappointment and disillusion. The hope that you had that the feelings would be reciprocated never came back to you. Now, why am I talking about all of these things in church during a sermon? And I think the reason that I'm talking about them is because all of these feelings that we have about love and unreturned love can also be applied to God. I had a friend who recently came and talked with me about some of his disappointments in his life, and he said to me, I know that God is good. I just don't know that God is good to me. I know that God is love. 
I just don't know if God loves me. See, many of us are, have an uncertainty in our life. Yes, we know that God is all of these things. I just don't know if God is that for me. And we look at our life and it's, we don't really have God in front of us. We have His Word. We have a relationship that's by faith, not by sight. And it's easy to interpret the relationship we have with God by the circumstances that are around us. If we have difficulties, it's easy for us to turn to God and ask the question, do you really love me? Do you really care about me? If God is for me, why would my marriage have fallen apart? If God is for me, why would he have let my spouse die? If God is for me, why would I have lost my job? These are the questions that we deal with, and they're the questions that this church, that this letter was written to in the book of Hebrews, is dealing with as well. See, and they're in the midst of some very, very difficult circumstances. They're losing their jobs because of persecution. They're losing their friends. They're losing their possessions. And they're asking the question as they look around at their life, God, I love you, but do you love me? If you're like this, God, why is this going on? Wouldn't it be great if we could be certain about how and what God thought about us? Wouldn't it be great if the love that we had for God, that we could know the love that God had for us, that we could count on it, that we could take it to the bank, that we could put all the weight of our hope and expectations on it? I think that if we were able to do that, that we would live in a new kind of freedom. That amidst the circumstances and difficulties of life, when life comes crashing down on our head, we would somehow be able to live in peace, live in freedom, because we saw the bigger picture. We understood the truth. It's the 1 John 4.18 that says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Well, what this passage is telling us is that we can have confidence in what God thinks of us because He has told us. He has told us He will bless us, and He has sworn it in His own name. See, the truth of the matter is there's only one blessing that counts, and there's only one blessing that you can count on. The blessing that God gives to those who take Him at His word. And so for the next 30 minutes, we're going to take a look at three questions. Number one, we need to look to what He has promised. What is it He has sworn to His people? The second we need to look at is looking to what He has proven. He's not only promised it, but He's proven His promise. And then finally, we need to look to what He's preparing. Because there's only one blessing that counts. And there's only one blessing that you can count on. The blessing that God gives to those who take Him at His word. Well, let's break this down. Let's look at the first point. We need to look to what He has promised. Look at verse 13 and this promise. When God made a promise to Abraham, since He had no one greater by whom to swear, He swore by Himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, this isn't the first time that God had said this to Abraham. In fact, he had said it 10 chapters earlier. That's this uh, verse in Genesis 22, 17. He said it 10 chapters earlier, 40 years ago in Abraham's life. 
When the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 12, leave your country, your people and your father's household to go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Well, let's talk about this concept of blessings. What exactly is the word blessing? In Hebrew, the word blessing means is Barach, actually where we get the name Barach, Obama. Barach means to bless. And literally, it means knee, or to bend the knee, the verb, barak, bend the knee. Now, we understand this concept in our language. So, for instance, if you are, uh, if somebody is beneath you, what do you do? You look down on them. Okay, that's a symbol of being above them. But if you want to bless them, what do you do? You lift them up. You laud them. You bend the knee, if you will, to lift them up rather than looking down at them and seeing them as beneath you. This concept we understand in the military because the high ground is always the superior ground, isn't it? When you have the high ground, you're in a position of advantage. But to give someone else the high ground is to laud them and to lift them up. Whenever this word in Hebrew is translated into Greek, so if you were reading the Old Testament in the Greek, in the Septuagint, the word used would be eulogia, from where we get the word eulogy. Now, I don't know about any of you that's ever been to a eulogy at a funeral, but they're always the exact same. Doesn't matter how much of a scoundrel the person was, does it? Because in a eulogy, the job of the eulogist is to lift them up, to find those positive qualities, to laud their life before everyone else, to eulogize them. That is what the blessing means. And we need to understand that as the, as the people would have read this in ancient Near Eastern culture, the society was very patriarchal, a father to son, a very, very big understanding of the chain of command, very patriarchal. And wealth was passed from father to son by means of a blessing, as well as reputation. See, what the father thought of the children is what was communicated out to society. And so it was critical to obtain the blessing of the father before he died for one's own financial interest and for one's own social interest. The elements of blessing were all about the same. There's really three of them. The first was the blessing for prosperity. May you prosper. May you grow. May you have lands. May you have flocks. They didn't have stocks back then, they had flocks. May you prosper. Second, may you uh, be potent. May there be fertility in your life. May you multiply. May your descendants increase. And then finally, may you have victory over your enemies. Prosperity, potency, and victory. One theologian said that blessing brings the power of life, the enhancement of life, and the increase of life. And so if you know your Old Testament at all, for instance, in Genesis 49, when uh, Israel is dying, Jacob is dying, he brings his 12 sons to him, and what does he do? He lays hands on them, and he blesses them. And he gives a foreshadowing of what their life is going to be like. Probably the most famous example in the Bible is that of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. Remember the two sons of Isaac is dying? And Esau has despised his birthright earlier. He sold it for a bowl of stew to Jacob. And so the time comes to bring the blessing. 
And Jacob sneaks in. Isaac gives the blessing of the, the fruits of the estate, the majority of the estate, and the blessing of the father upon him as the one who will carry the family line. And Esau does not get the blessing, and he goes out despondent and in despair because he didn't receive the blessing from his father. See, to not receive the blessing is devastating, socially and relationally. It's like hearing, I don't love you. The truth of the matter is, all of us need blessing, don't we? And the blessing must come from those who are above us. Interesting study by psychologist Kyle Pruitt, who analyzes, because there's something very interesting about this blessing that must come from the father more than the mother. There's a distinct difference between fathers and mothers. Here's some interesting findings that have emerged from the careful research on the role of fathers. That infants as young as six weeks old can differentiate between a father and mother's voice. By eight weeks, babies can distinguish between their father and their mother's caretaking methods. Infants are born with a drive to find and connect to their fathers. As they begin to speak, their word for father often precedes their word for mother. The reasons for this are unknown. Toddlers are especially obvious in their assertions of fatherhood. They will seek out their father, ask for him when he's not present, be fascinated when he talks to them on the phone, and investigate every part of his body, if allowed. They're fascinated with their fathers, and what they've discovered is that sons that have not received that meaningful contact with their father, the, the rates of, whether it be a prison, or illiteracy, or a host of problems, escalate exponentially. The research they found on people with death row that 98.5% of them had a horrible relationship with their father. Interesting study, some years ago, executives of a greeting card company decided to do something special for Mother's Day. They set up a table in a federal prison inviting any inmate who so desired to send a free card to his mom. The lines were so long they had to make another trip to the factory to get more cards. Due to the success of the event, they decided to do the same thing on Father's Day, but this time no one came. Not one prisoner felt the need to send a card to his dad. Many had no idea who their fathers even were. What a sobering illustration of a dad's importance to his children. I see this all the time with my children. When I go out to watch them play sports and they'll have a good play and they'll kick the ball and they'll do it, and what will they do? They'll immediately turn and they'll look at me. And the question they're asking is, did you see that, Dad? Do I have what it takes? Recently, uh, we have a, a daughter in our home now, and she looks at me, but with different eyes. She asks different questions. The question that she always seems to want to ask to me is, am I beautiful, Daddy? They need the blessing, and so do we. We need it from our fathers, and many of us know that heartbreak of not receiving. But more importantly, we need the blessing from God. Hardwired into our DNA is this need to know from God the message, I love you, I value you, I esteem you. So how do we receive it from God? Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, 
of his person, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things we might have strong encouragement. See, God wanted us to know that we are to receive the blessing of God. And so what did he, what did he do? He gave an oath. We understand oaths, don't we? You ever been in a courtroom? You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God? Swearing by someone superior. If I was performing a marriage today, I would have two people in front of me who would be taking vows in front of God and in front of these witnesses. For better, for worse. For sicker, for poor, sicker, or the health. Till death do us part. Let's hope I wouldn't mangle them like that. The point being that God wanted to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. And so he said that he would bless and he confirmed it with an oath. But because there was no one greater to confirm this oath with, he did it by himself. There is no greater power than God himself. Why did he do this? So that we might have strong encouragement for us, the children of Abraham. And so I ask you the question, are you living in the blessing of God? See, all of us are either living from the blessing of God or for the blessing of God. If you're to get at the root of all of your behavior, why do you take that job? Why do you buy that house? Why do you wear those clothes? Why do you make those friends? It's really either living for that blessing of God. See what I'm doing, God. Don't you love me? Or it's living from the blessing of God. I'm going to live the way I am because I am assured of what God thinks of me. What is it with you? You may be a good person. You may pay your bills. You may go to a respectable church. Well, maybe not. You may belong to the important institutions, but do you know the blessing of God? And so what I want to suggest to you is to take God at His word. Not at the feelings that you may be having from time to time. Not at the circumstances of your life, whether sometimes are up or sometimes down. But rather based on the oath that He has confirmed, surely I will bless you. Because if you do, if you take Him at His word, you will discover that less and less do you have to prove something to God or to yourself. But you will become a more accepting person. You will discover that more and more you will have an attitude of gratitude in your life. More than frustration and disappointment. You will discover that the eyes of your heart will more and more be gazing up toward the one who gives you the blessing. Rather than to those around you. There's only one blessing that counts. And there's only one blessing that you can count on. The blessing God gives to those who take it. Well, now what I want to look at is not only the blessing that he has promised, but the blessing that he has proven. How did Abraham respond to this blessing? Remember that God said, leave your home and go and wander to a place that I will show you. And so Abraham wandered and he wandered and he wandered for 25 years. Hearing these promises that he would be blessed, that he would have a great, be in a great nation and having no children. Trying to reconcile the promises of God with the realities 
of life. And then we had Isaac. Ah, things were starting to make sense. Here was finally a son of my own loins, a place where I could build a family, a dynasty. And so 15 years later, he must have been down dumbfounded when he heard from God, I want you to take your own son, Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him to me as a burnt offering. They think that Isaac was about 15 years when this call came to God, uh, excuse me, came to Abraham. Now I have a 14 year old son, some of you have children, and I can't imagine what must have been going on in Abraham's heart as he sought to reconcile the goodness of God and the plan of God with the message that he was hearing to sacrifice his own son. All of God's plans seemed to be falling in place. And now all of God's purposes seemed to be falling apart. But Abraham had wandered for 40 years. And that 40 years of testing had strengthened his faith. So much so that Abraham decided to go through with it. Believing that God would actually resurrect Isaac after he had killed him. And so he took Isaac up. That passage that we read earlier. And he laid him on the wood to kill him. And God stopped him. And what did God say? By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this. And not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. You know, it's interesting. God never swore by himself again in any of his dealings with the patriarchs. But he did. We see in verse 15 that Abraham thus patiently having waited, waited obtained the promise. He didn't obtain it by generating it. But Abraham obtained it by responding to what God called him to do. It was a test, and Abraham passed. All Abraham had was the promise, and he responded. But we have so much more. Look at verse 18. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. See, all Abraham had was a promise, but we have a person, Jesus Christ. All Abraham had was hope for the future, but we have proof from the past. All Abraham longed to see, we have seen the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise of God. Because 2,000 years ago, there was another crisis of faith. When a father was called to give up his own son. But this father was not a man, but God himself. The time had come to fulfill the oath that God had given to Abraham. Because in order to bless man, someone had to be cursed. Is not the ultimate curse to be put in the ground of death? Is there a lower place that one can go? Can go? But God provided the lamb, the God-man, Jesus Christ. See, Abraham gave up his son that he might receive him and his millions of descendants back. But God gave up his son, Jesus, that he might obtain millions of new descendants into his own family, the inheritors of the promise. The cross of Jesus Christ is the proof of the fulfillment of the oath of God. God has not only promised, he has proven, not only by his words, 
but by His actions. And so we can not only look to what God has said, we can look to what God has done. In circumstances, it's easy to doubt God in crisis. Today, in 9-11, as some relive that horrible day, the day that people lost loved ones, lost businesses, lost fortunes, all gone up in smoke. It's easy to act, say, God, you said, but we can look that God has kept his word. God has promised and God has proven. God gave up his own son. He cursed him. And so when you and I are tempted to doubt the promises of God, look to the cross. When you say, he doesn't care. Glory in the cross. The proof that God cares. The proof that our reward is greater than the things of this world. That our eternal inheritance is greater than the temporary pains of this world. The older I get, the more I realize that I'm not the person that I thought I was. That maybe the things that I hoped I would accomplish, I may not accomplish. The more I become accustomed to the realities of life, that it is hard. But yet I can hope in a certain blessing of God that He has promised and proven. Because God, who has kept His promise, has shown us because He has gone to such great lengths. There is only one blessing that counts. And there's only one blessing that you can count on. The blessing God gives to those who take Him at His word. And so we must look to what God has promised and look to what God has proven. We must now look to what God is preparing. Because Jesus' death and resurrection is the beginning of the fulfillment and blessing of God. The one thing we need to understand about Jesus is He was God, but He was man as well. He was one of us. He could be sitting right there in the congregation if we lived back then. And Jesus went into the ground and underwent the curse of the cross for us. But he was raised to life and ascended above us. For if the greatest curse of all is being put into the ground, is not the greatest eulogy to be lifted up into the very throne room of God. Romans 4.25 puts it this way, that he was put to death for our sins, but he was raised to life for our justification. Look at verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We all know, of course, what the inner place is. It's the place in the temple where God dwells. And Jesus was raised and was exalted as what? As the forerunner. As the first fruits of a new resurrection. As the first man to go into the temple. But he was a forerunner. This word in the, the Greek means one who has gone to bring us into not one who's just gone ahead. It's one who has gone ahead to prepare a way. If we were on a military expedition and we were going to take a, a certain location, who would we send in first? Send in the Marines, wouldn't we? And the special forces to clear the way 
so that the new forces could come in right behind them. Jesus, as the perfect man, the eulogized man, has gone in the, as the forerunner on our behalf. And so we have Jesus as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's almost like God, through the Holy Spirit, has put a rope around us and he's linked it to Jesus Christ, who goes into heaven as our forerunner to which we will surely follow. This word steadfast is very interesting in the Greeks, the word aspaleia. You may be familiar with that word. If you remember when Henry Ford and the, road and the car was being created, there was a problem. The roads would get bogged down and they didn't have a sure way to get from place to place until they discovered asphalt, where one, a car could get a sure grip a steadfast grip where it could get from place to place. We have a sure asphalt anchor of the soul tied to that of Jesus Christ. Eric Weinmeier was born with a rare vision disorder called retinoschisis that left him blind at age 13. Having received a taste of normal life, he was determined to live his life to the fullest, regardless of his sight condition. Already an avid outdoorsman, Eric had dreamed of one day climbing to the tallest place on the planet, Mount Everest. But despite his best efforts at living a normal life, he, he came to realize that on his own, he would never be able to make that ascension, 29,000 feet. And so he sought to enlist the services of a mountain guide that would help him, but they all turned him down. It's too dangerous. It's too risky to try to take a blind man all the way up to the summit of Everest. Normal sighted people died all the time until he met Jeff Evans. Jeff was an accomplished climber, trained in emergency medicine, who lived in Colorado. While others passed, Jeff Evans said yes, that he would take Eric to the summit. The road to the top was severe and challenging. The conditions were difficult. They realized the only way that this was going to work was for Eric to tether himself to Jeff Evans, who would pull him up step by step to the top of Everest. And so they did in 2001, where Eric Weinmeier became the first blind man to summit Everest. In fact, he has summited the seven summits, the tallest mountains on all the seven continents of the world. Jeff led Eric to the top of the world. Jeff and Eric's relationship was shown recently in action on the hit TV series, Expedition Impossible, where they placed second in this journey all the way around Morocco. See, God has promised his blessing to his people, but how are we to obtain it? Left to ourselves, we will never be able to enter into the holies of holies. But Jesus Christ, our guide, has come. And he has scaled the impossible mountain. And he has clipped us to himself, calling on us to hold on as he surely will take us to our destination. Are you discouraged and scared and worried at times, wondering what God thinks about you? Don't hold on to religion. Don't hold on to others. Don't hold on to yourself but hold on to Jesus Christ. When you don't know the way, when you're lost, when you're in the midst of the whiteout, 
the storm of discouragement, the storm of fear, the storm of indecision, and you don't know where to turn, look to the successful one, Jesus Christ, who has lashed himself to you. He is your God. Jesus did not promise a smooth path. It wasn't for Eric Weinmeier. This life on earth is a trek to Everest, not a walk in the park. Anyone who told you different was lying to you. But we have a God who has promised that He will surely bless us, who has proven that He will by dying on the cross, and who, even as we speak, is preparing a place for us by being our forerunner who will surely bring us to heaven. Are you holding on to Christ? Or are you holding on to other things? Things that will not lead you to the top, but rather down to the grave. There is only one that God has given us. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. So look to Christ, the high priest of a new order, the one that bridges the gap between God and man. Because there is only one blessing that counts. And there's only one blessing that you can count on. The blessing that God gives to those who take Him at His word. Let us pray.